Good morning. Good morning. Got it. Open your Bibles with me, please, to uh, to First Samuel chapter fifteen. First Samuel chapter fifteen. Um, my brother Jonathan read the second half. I'd like to read this first half again. Um, I promised you we'd be back here this week, um, but I regret that I will not be fully able to talk about God's regret. And so we'll uh, we'll get to that soon. But uh, I want to uh, jump in here um, and uh, continue in this passage. Let's begin reading there in verse one, chapter fifteen of First Samuel. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul summoned the people and he numbered them in Telem, 200,000 men uh, on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and he lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hivalah as far as Shur, uh, which is east of Egypt. Uh, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction." The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel, uh, Saul came up to Carmel or Carmel and behold he has set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Samuel came to, uh, to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people... People took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, 
To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. Let's pray. Father, we are, um, we are again grateful that You haven't, Lord, just left us completely in the dark about who You are, about how You act, about Your character, about Your person. Lord, you, you, you reveal Yourself page after page after page in Your book, Your Word. And I pray, Father, that Your church would, would sit up and listen carefully, Lord, to, to who You are, what, re, what You require, and what it is that pleases You. Well, Father, we thank You for the treasure of Your Word, this, this sanctifying book, the sanctifying truth, God, that, that causes us, those who are saved, those who are Your children, Lord, to grow more and more into Christ-likeness. God, we need Your help. Not only to understand, but, but Lord, then to apply, to, to, to live out the Word day by day. So Lord, we, we cry out to You. We, we ask for Your help. Open our eyes, reveal great truths from Your law. And then Lord, by Your grace, help us to obey. Thank You, Father, for this gathered people. Thank You for the time that we have in Your Word. May You, Lord, above all, be honored. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are here once again in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And Lord willing, uh, we're going to continue here probably another one more, more, more week. There's so much to unpack here in this chapter, but I, I want to uh, continue uh, in this, um, uh, this, this wonderful, really, really revealing chapter, isn't it, here in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And you know what? We entitled this, uh, this whole series in, in, the, in this chapter, Mission Disobedience. You may remember that. So if you're taking notes, this is part two. Israel had cried out for a king like the other nations. And you know, you know, sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is for God to give us what we want. Yeah. Right? They got what they wanted, a king like the nations. And, and it's amazing too, isn't it? Because, because who was their king? Jehovah was their king. God was their king. The request revealed a heart that was not satisfied with God as their king. Give us a king like the nations. God had delivered them from bondage in Egypt. God had fought their battles. God had provided for them. And they said, give us a king like the nations. Again, sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is for God to give us what we want. Of course, you guys know that Romans 1 reveals this truth, doesn't it? Where God gives people over to their desires, their, their lusts, and of course they have to suffer the consequences for that as well, the consequence of their choices. I mean, this is what has happened to Israel. God has given them what they wanted. They wanted a king, and they got one, just like the nation. Saul, right? He's, he's tall. He, he's handsome. He's had, certainly had some military success, as we read in chapter 14. He's historically successful. But history does not have the last word on the man, right? God does. And he's not a man after God's own heart. He, he doesn't listen or obey the voice of the Lord. Now, now, right here at the beginning of this message, I, I don't want you to think that there is some failure in God. Do you understand? In choosing Saul as king. I don't want you to think that somehow God, God wasn't aware that Saul was going to fail. Some people might be tempted to do that. So Sometimes God gives His people over to futility that we might see a deeper need 
for Him. Now, if you just go back a little bit in Israel's history, uh, you'll see that in their disobedience, many times God gave Israel into the hands of an invading army. And what would God do? He'd hear their cries as they were suffering under the bondage of the peoples that, in, in, in the land in which they lived. And, and what would God do? He'd raise up Savior after Savior after Savior. And what would He do? He would deliver His people. But they were always sort of insufficient saviors, weren't, weren't they? And what was God doing in that? He's pointing, he's pointing them to a, to a new Savior. A new and a better judge. A new and a better deliverer. One who is to come. That they might, they might see the futility of their actions and trust in the true and the living God. God was their Savior. That they might look forward and hope to that, that one who is to come. That one who would save them from their own sin. I mean, here in this passage, that, that Israel would look forward to a new and a better king, right? Emmanuel, God with us. A righteous king, right? A, a, a savior king, King Jesus. Amen? Yes. Here in chapter 15, we see Saul's failure to obey the voice of the Lord. God has chosen him at, at, at the people's request. And, and when you've been chosen by God, there, there are certain expectations that God has. You serve the one who chose you, Saul. You are to listen to his voice. Verse 1, once again, here it is. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, and here really is the theme of the whole chapter, listen to the words of the Lord. Listen to the words of the Lord. In other words, in light of, of, of this truth that God picked you as king, you serve King Jehovah. You, you, you serve God as your king. You must listen to His voice. Of course, he reminds him again in, the, in the, the same thing in verse 17. He says, and Samuel said, Though you were little in your own eyes, you remember how Saul talked about how he was from the smallest tribe and of the smallest clan of the smallest tribe. He says, But, but are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And with that comes great responsibility, great expectations from God Himself. (laughs) Mm, Here it is. You serve the God who chose you. Saul had the responsibility to lead Israel under the leadership of Jehovah. And God sent him on a mission. Last time we talked about this mission, didn't we? This mission of death there in those first verses. This mission to go and, and, and appoint the Amalekites to total destruction. Every man, every woman, every child, every infant, all of their livestock. Right? We, we talked about that uh, last time. And, 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 and evidently, partial obedience from God's point of view is full rebellion. Yeah, at least we see that. Right? There's no, there, there's no uh, coming from God you know, to, to, to Saul and saying, hey, here's a participation trophy. You know, pat him on the back and say, hey, you did the best you could. No, that's not, it's not the way God is. Do you understand? God, God, God is perfect. God is holy. And He requires that of His, of His creatures. All of us who are chosen by God, all of us who are His children, this is what God expects. Now we know that perfect obedience is, is not possible on this side of heaven. Praise be to God for Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah. Right up front, let's just praise God for Jesus Christ who lived in perfect obedience and His perfect obedient life, His active obedience is imputed to us and God accepts us based upon that. Amen? But that's not an excuse for us to sin. That's not an excuse for us then to just live however we want to, whenever we want to, Right? We looked at God's absolute sovereignty here in this passage and His right to rule over life and death and how all men are under the wrath of God apart from Jesus Christ. 
And that 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, listen, are not inconsistent with the way God has acted in the past and are not inconsistent with the way God will act in the future when He destroys the world again in fire, right? We learned that this mission was God's vengeance and that it was a, a pure vengeance, that it was a righteous vengeance, that it was a virtuous vengeance, that it was a just vengeance. Because that, the church can find a place of rejoicing in our hearts for that. Yes. Think about it. We, we, we thought about it last week. The, the idea that one day all, all the persecutions that we endure as believers, one, one day all the evil men that want to try to kill Christ's church and shut up Christ's church, one day they're going to all be done away with. There's a comfort in that, I think. I think the church can find a place for rejoicing in that. And also find a place for rejoicing, rejoicing because God is glorified even in His wrath. I reminded you, we have a mission as well. It's not a death mission, right? But it's a mission of life. We are ambassadors for Christ, I reminded you. As though God were pleading through us to the world, right? Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Hmm. Which has its own challenges and its own hardships. And our obedience, listen, our obedience is just as vital, is it not? Right? Yeah, this means yes. Yeah, our obedience is just as vital. God has called us to a holy task in His church. And so I want to move on to this, this second kind of major point in this text. Not only the, 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 the mission of death, but I want you to see here in, this, in these next verses, beginning in verse 10, the priority of obedience. Really God's priority of obedience. The priority of obedience. So let's, let's just pick it up there in verse 10. Read that once again. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel, um, Saul came to Car- uh, Carmel or Carmel and behold he set up a monument for himself and he turned and he passed on and went down to Gilgal. You guys remember Gilgal, that place of meeting of Joshua and the people when they crossed over into the, into the promised land. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be, uh, be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. Really? And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Let's pause there for just a moment. Verses 10 and 11 there. We, we, um, I think if you, if you don't give pause to that, uh, to that verse, there's, there's something wrong. We here in our, our uh, Reformed tradition and in our, in our uh, uh, teaching here have taught you about the immutability of God, right? And so uh, I think it's a little strange to, uh, to hear God say, I'm sorry. I think that's a strange for us to hear from, from God. I'm sorry or I regret or, or it can be translated uh, repentance or repent. I repent or I regret or I'm sorry that I made Saul king over Israel. I think it's a little strange for us to hear that from God. But I'm convinced. Are you, are you ready? I'm convinced God wants us to hear it. Why? Because it's here. It's here, it's here in the text. We, we, can't, we can't get around that. We have to. And we're going to try to understand that soon. <laughs> like I said before, I regret that I am not going to fully get to God's regret, but here we are. But for now, I want to look at God's assessment of Saul. Here's what He says. For He has turned back from following Me and has not performed My commandments. This is God's testimony concerning Saul. 
uh, he is the God who, by the way, cannot lie. It's, like, it's not like God doesn't have all the information. But he doesn't know what's going on on the inside of Saul and the outside of Saul, right? He knows every fact inside and outside of Saul. And by the way, just as a sobering fact, he knows that about you too. All of us. Remember the theme of this chapter, listen to the voice of the Lord. Remember, remember, this is the matter that matters most in this chapter. And even though Saul didn't fully listen to God's voice, he's quite proud of his accomplishments, is he not? I mean, you think about it. He's so proud he even sets up a monument to himself. Think about it. Right now, now again, this is not the same uh, uh, Carmel as, as Elijah. This, this one's near Hebron. But, but he was so proud of his so-called victory. I mean, why not celebrate? And how are you going to celebrate? Let's set up a monument to me. Yeah, this is Saul, right? I mean, it's amazing how blind pride makes us to the ugly truth about ourselves. But this is exactly where Saul was. But according to the Lord, Saul is no longer a disciple of Jehovah. He no longer serves the purposes of the Lord. He no longer listens to the voice of the Lord. Samuel was given this news from the Lord himself. And the Bible says here, he was angry. He was angry and he cried to the Lord. How long? All night. Cried to the Lord all night. But well, we're not told what he was angry about or, or the nature of his night cries. I mean, we, we could ask the questions, right? Was he angry with the Lord? Was he angry with Saul? Probably. Was he angry about the situation? About the task he now has in confronting Saul? I mean, why did he cry about all night? It, it, was, he, was he crying for forgiveness for Saul? Maybe for, for, him, for, for Israel? Uh, maybe, maybe he's thinking about himself and now he needs endurance for the task that is before him. I'm certainly sure that he wasn't looking forward to hacking Agag to pieces. I mean, who would be, who would be excited about that? And maybe the answer to all of that is yes. <laughs> or maybe, right? I mean, if you've ever had a real burden on your heart, it's more complicated than most people think, maybe even ourselves can fully comprehend. I I like what one theologian uh, wrote, uh, Joyce uh, Baldwin. um, She died back in the the mid-90s, but uh, uh, a, a proper English theologian. Here's what she said. She said, In the first place, Samuel's theology was being put in question. Against his better judgment, he had cooperated in king making, announcing that Saul was the one whom the Lord had chosen. Now it appears, that's a key word, now it appears that the Lord, who will not lie or repent, had changed his mind. And Samuel could not come to terms with this challenge uh, to God's sovereignty. In the second place, what was to come of the leadership of Israel? The country was in a worse plight than ever. Last but not least, Samuel was torn within himself by the divine word and needed to settle this turmoil before the Lord. The personal cost of ministry is seen in the life of Samuel and in this passage in particular. I thought that was really well written, really well done. And isn't that true? If you, listen, every, every true child of God is grieved by what grieves our God. Yes. Isn't it true? We, don't we wrestle with those kinds of things? Samuel, Samuel, I think, takes no pleasure in Saul's utter failure. And he takes no pleasure in Saul's sin, nor in the task he now has to confront him. I don't think he's looking forward, again, to hacking King Agag to pieces. I mean, this is going to be a hard task for Samuel. 
Sometimes God asks us to do some hard things and confronting someone in sin has to be one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in ministry. Those of you that that know, those of you that care about other people and you've seen someone who's trapped in any trespass or whatever, you know, don't you? you? You know the weight of that. And I would say this to you too. Listen, if you enjoy that kind of thing, Oh, if you just really enjoy going up and telling people, other people about their sin, you're probably not the person for the job. Right. <laughs> Samuel, Samuel has a burden on his heart, doesn't he? Yeah. If you're concerned for the kingdom of God and the people of His kingdom, you know, listen, don't you? You know the weight. You, you, you know the sorrow. You know the sleepless nights when the kingdom is being injured by sin, right? When the king has been offended by sin. That is King Jesus. Some of the most emotionally difficult seasons in ministry have been when I've had to confront someone else in their sin. And, and, you know, and you know you have to do it. Why? Because Christ has commanded us to do so. And I've even prayed this way. God, God, I don't, I don't want to do this. Right? I don't want to do this. And, and you think to yourself, well, maybe it'll just go away. If I just leave it alone a little while, it'll just go away. Or maybe these people will move on from the church or something, something like that. We've, we've had these thoughts. If you're concerned about people, right? And you wrestle with the thoughts that, 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 that if you'll just leave it alone, it'll go away. And, and, and you know that oftentimes, too, it's, it's not going to be a happy ending, yes. at least immediately. And that some people won't understand or support you because this person you're confronting is their family member or their friend. Or, or maybe some influential person in the, in the community or the church. Or maybe even the king of Israel. Sleepless nights and emotional agony are the norm for these kinds of things, people. (laughs) But it is absolutely necessary for the health of the church, the glory of God, and the purity of His kingdom. Some people in the church today would say, "Uh, you know, other people's sin is is none of our business. Mm. Well, Samuel would disagree with you. And certainly Jesus would disagree with you. In fact, He gives us this whole process of confronting people in their sin in Matthew 18, doesn't He? What does He say? If your brother sins against you, what do you do? Oh, you just leave it alone. Maybe they'll go away. Is that what He says? No, He says, go to your brother. Confront him, right? In love, with the right attitudes, taking the plank out of your own eye, right? First examining yourself, right? Go to him. Confront him. If If he hears you, what? You've won your brother. He says, if he doesn't, what do you do? You take two or three with you to establish every word and, and you confront them again in love, right? And he says, if you don't hear, don't hear the two or three with the two or three witnesses, what do you do? You tell it to the church, he says. What, what for? So we can embarrass the person? No, not at all. So that you can incorporate the whole body of believers pleading with this individual to repent and be restored to Christ in love. And then the Bible says what? If, if they don't hear the church, what are we to do? We're to treat them as a heathen and a tax collector. How do we treat heathens and tax collectors? We, 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 we share the gospel with them, don't we? We tell them about the Lord. Yeah, Christ has given us a process for this. Obviously, we need to examine ourselves. You know, I can't imagine Samuel not thinking to, not thinking to himself at some point during his night cries that, that he had to examine his own life. Mm. Same way with us. The very nature of the church as the single body of Christ requires that we deal with sin. You know this. Infection affects the whole body. My sin affects you. Your sin affects me. And if we care for the church, if we love the family of faith, if we're concerned for God's glory through the the church's purity, we have to to confront people in their sin. What? In love. Yes. It's not easy, but it is absolutely necessary. But where Saul is burdened, excuse me, where Samuel is burdened, Saul, on the other hand, seems very upbeat. 
<laughs> Look at verse 12, at least in the beginning here. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And as it was told Samuel, Saul came to, to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And he turned and he passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you, uh, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. Here the Bible tells us he goes down to Gilgal. And listen to that greeting again. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. I'm think, I'm, I know Samuel's sitting there thinking, really? Yeah. I mean, he can hear some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right? Saul, Saul, listen, and, and we, we can't pick on Saul too much because Saul is, is much like us sometimes. Proud of our partial obedience and willing to even argue with God about it. And this is exactly what Saul does. He's defending his disobedience. His claim directly, directly contradicts the Lord's assessment of him in verse 11. He said, he no longer listens to my voice. That was God's assessment. Right? I mean, you can't argue with that. But he does. <laughs> yeah. Samuel's on to him, though. What is this racket I hear from the flocks and herds? Verse 15. Verse 15 says, Saul, uh, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Samuel had a second question there in, in verse 19, and Saul again defends his disobedience. Again, in verses 20 and 21, he even blames the people. That's just like human nature, isn't it? Right? The people, the people, listen, the, the, the people, they demanded this. They, they, they took all the best of the flocks and herds, right? And wanted to sacrifice them. But Samuel isn't buying any of it. Did you notice that? God knows you can't hide from God. God picked you for the task. You can't blame the people. You're the king He chose. I mean, isn't this Adam and Eve? I mean, all the way back to the garden. This is the same stuff they tried to sell to God as well, right? Adam gets caught in his sin. He said, oh, it's that woman you gave me, God. I mean, he's even trying to blame God. It's that woman you gave me. I've tried that one a few times too. It doesn't work at home either. And, and then Eve, right? It comes, it comes to Eve. It's the serpent. You know, the serpent, he deceived me and, and I ate. We, we, we do the same things, folks. Just like, just like Saul, just like Adam and Eve. We, we, we do the same stuff. Hmm. Hmm. It didn't work for Adam and Eve. It certainly doesn't work for us either. Samuel has a third question there in verse 22. Verse 22. He says... Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? In essence, he says, he says, does sacrifice excite the Lord as much as obeying His voice? Do you get it? Yeah. And I think we need to spend a little time here, maybe camp out here for just a little while. I mean, because I, again, this is kind of the heart of this whole chapter. The defense of the theme is, is right here. Samuel and Saul have been going back and forth about what listening to the voice of God looks like. And Samuel here gives, gives Saul some really clear teaching. It's just like fallen humanity to argue about the nature of sin, but Samuel is going to set Saul straight. So I want you to listen line upon line to, uh, to, to, to Samuel's argument there. First in verse 22, here's the question. The question, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Then he gives an assertion there. Here's the assertion. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. 
Then he gives a comparison, verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And then, of course, we have the condemnation there in the latter part of that. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. It may surprise some to know that Samuel's question and assertion are what the Old Testament teaches everywhere. This is what he's taught everywhere. Listen to a couple of verses. This is Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. What shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the soul of my sin? Or excuse me, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Psalm uh, chapter 40, verse 6 6 to 8. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart, he says. It's New Testament orthodoxy as well, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right? It's your spiritual worship. This is what he requires. Now, listen here. Samuel is not negating Old Testament sacrifices. He's saying, he's saying your sacrifices don't mean much if you're living in disobedience. He's saying, don't come with empty sacrifice if you're living like the devil. It's barren worship. Formal worship can't be a substitute for an obedient life. External devotion can't be a substitute for internal submission. This is what he's saying. Your orthodoxy, listen church, your orthodoxy, your, 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 your doxology, your doctrinal reading, your, your offerings in the plate, your men's breakfast, your women's Bible studies, your attendance at Bible conference, none of this matters unless you're keeping Christ's commands. 1 John 2, 3 and 4. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, listen, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. That's a sobering verse. Saul was willing to offer animals. Well, someone else's animals. <laughs> but he wasn't willing to offer himself to God. He was willing to promote himself by setting up a monument, but not willing to listen to the voice of the Lord. Let's look at Samuel's evaluation. And I think, I think this is key as well. This is the comparison found there in verse, uh, uh, verse, um, verse 23. Listen to it. It says, uh, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. There it is. That's the comparison. Samuel assumes that that sin must be rightly identified. At this point, Saul doesn't get it, does he? He he doesn't fully grasp the weight of his offense against our holy God. And and, and Saul, listen, Saul wasn't having any of Samuel's conversation. And so he comes to to brass tacks, right? He, He gets down to the bottom line. Samuel wants Saul to feel the full weight of his rebellion against God. Samuel is going to get to the heart of the matter, if you will. Saul's not listening to the voice of Jehovah. Listen, and I'm going to say this. How do I say this tactfully? It's not some misunderstanding. And Samuel wants Saul to know that. It's not some mistake 
or simply a, a little shortcoming. It is rebellion, it is arrogance, and it is idolatry. Samuel wants Saul to feel the weight of that, to know this. And if properly compared, it is in the same category as sheer pagan idolatry. In other words, he might as well just be practicing witchcraft. Divination, he says. There it is. He's living in practical atheism. Can you, not, can you not see the contradiction? I mean, th- think about it for, for a moment. To, to, to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and, and then to go and live an opposite life, a life that does not conform to the confession you just made. That's practical atheism. Yes. I mean, you may say, but you don't do. And we, can't, we can't call Christ Lord and then disobey. It's, it is the same thing. It's living a practical atheism. Saul thought he knew better than God about what was best. He, he thought, you know, listen, we can just keep the, the best of the livestock. I'm sure there's more behind this. But if we're going to really noblize it, right? if we want to really make it righteous, what we'll do is we'll just keep all the best of that and we'll sacrifice it to the Lord. And then, and then, you know, so we can kind of celebrate the victory, we'll keep their king Agag alive so we can parade him in front of everybody to say, hey, look what we've accomplished. Look at this great victory that we, that we have. And we'll even, we'll even set up a, a sort of a, a monument to ourselves, right? Mm. Saul couldn't see the real problem. Or maybe I could say it this way. He wouldn't see yes. the real problem, not the depth of it. And I think, listen, I, I just, just to kind of make some practical application here, I, I, think we, I, think we are, I think we're similar in ways. We, we, we like to, in our day, we like to rename sin in our day. We like, we like to soften it, I, I guess if you will, to make it less offensive than what it really is. And then, of course, to medicate ourselves to make us feel better about our sin. Do you, do you remember when, in, when, when adultery was called adultery? Right? Today, an indiscretion. It's called an indiscretion. You, you remember when an alcoholic used to be called a drunkard? You remember when an, an, an obsession and a compulsion used to be called a controlling idol? Yes. You remember when, a, when an alternative lifestyle used to be called perversion? Yes. We used to call self-promotion and self-actualization and self-care, we used to call that selfish pride. Mm. Listen carefully, church. We need to tread lightly, I think, and agree with God about sin. We need, we need to go back to the Bible and what the Bible calls it. The Bible does not have a solution. Listen, the Bible does not have a solution for a person who commits an indiscretion, but it does have a solution for a person who commits adultery. The Bible does not have a, a solution for a person who is an alcoholic. The, the Bible has a solution for a man who is a drunkard or a woman who is a drunkard. Do you understand? The Bible has a solution for the prideful. It has a solution for the idolater. Hmm. We need to agree with God about sin. There is a solution. There is a solution for the rebel. There is a solution for the prideful. Repentance and forgiveness are only possible when we agree with God about our sin. And today, listen, this very day is a great day for an honest conversation with God. Yes. Hmm. When we soften sin or redefine it instead of agreeing with God, listen, we are really cutting ourselves off from the possibility of grace. I mean, what grace do we need apart from acknowledging the hideous stench of our own sin? I mean, look at us. We're all dressed somewhat appropriately today. Most of you have your Bibles 
And some of you have them open. I mean, look at you. We are, we are by all outward appearances, appropriate, card-carrying members of Providence Baptist Church. Hmm. Our houses are full of great theological works. We give regularly. We come to prayer meetings. I think it's hard sometimes for, for card-carrying Baptists, for, for Calvinized, baptized, catechized Christians to see our great and continuing need for grace. To see our areas of rebellion when we have so many other areas where, where we aren't rebelling. How does God feel about partial obedience? What, what, do we, what did He say? Yeah. And it's easy, I think, to become very proud of our humility. Right? To say, I have the gift of extreme humility. I'm I'm probably the most humble person I know. I mean, we would never say that, would we? But we might think that. We become very proud of our progress, our, our works, our theological knowledge. And we, like Saul, are very biased in our own favor. You are. I am. Very biased in our own favor. I mean, this, wasn't, this, wasn't this first century Judaism? Right? I mean, they, they, they were blind for their need to grace. I mean, it, 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 it was, first century Judaism was perhaps the most righteous or at least externally righteous generation perhaps in all of human history. I mean, they had all but exterminated idolatry in the land. They were, they were zealous for the law of God. And, and listen, you remember, Christ condemned the whole thing. Why? Because they were whitewashed tombs. They had an external righteousness. They, they honored God with their lips, but what? Their hearts were far from God. Yeah. It was a self-righteousness, wasn't it? A self-righteousness. Mm. Mm. They couldn't see... And they were proud of it. And you need to know, listen, that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And you need to know that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that good news? Samuel, Samuel does not soften the blow for Saul. And, and I've said this to you many times before, but sometimes shock therapy is better than a counseling session. And this is the case. Jesus emphasized hard obedience over empty outward exhibitions when He said this. He said, On that day many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? I mean, those sound like very spiritual activities. But what does He say to them? Depart from Me. I never knew you. You workers of iniquity or you who practice lawlessness. Yeah. John, in his first epistle, the the Apostle John, he said in chapter 5, verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Listen, I mean, we could sum it up this way. Worship is best expressed first in obedience. Let's not presume that we can live however we want from Monday to Saturday and then come to church on a Sunday morning and offer anything that's acceptable to God. Or that somehow God's going to unlock all the treasures of heaven upon us because we've been living like the devil all week. Worship is always first, listen, a heart issue, then an outward expression. Our outward expressions, listen, our singing, our giving, our reading, our praying, only mean something if God has our hearts. If we're living in submission to Him. I know there is no such thing as perfect submission this side of eternity, but I hope we're thinking about it. 
thinking about how we live and being honest with God about our sin. I mean, we can't be like Saul, can we? We need, we need the confrontation of the Word of God. We, we need people to speak truth to us when we sin. We need to submit to one another. We need to submit to flawed elders, right? We, we need the rebuke of the Word. We need the clarity from the Word that the Word gives about our errors, our sins. And then, of course, we need the empowering grace to help us live it, right? Amen? Yeah. And like Saul, too, listen, we may not see the, the sinfulness of sin on the surface apart from the confrontation of the Word. We may not see that. I remember um, some time ago, um, it wasn't that long ago. I like to think it was a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago. You'll understand when I tell you the story. In our, we have a little laundry room, and I have a freezer back there in the laundry room, and I noticed that uh, every few days water was kind of seeping out from underneath uh, the freezer there. And I thought, there's something wrong with, uh, what do they call it, the defrost thing or the drain or something on the freezer. And I thought, I'll just wipe it up and then sometime I'll tear into it and fix it. I'm a man. I can fix it, right? Well, it just kept coming. It kept coming. It wouldn't, it wouldn't drop. And I was like, man, that's not, that can't be the freezer. So after a few days, I pulled the freezer out and I could see the water was actually coming, seeping from under the wall. I was, I was completely prepared to tear into the wall. I had the tools. I'm a man. I know how to do this. But you guys know that I have a plumber yes. as my son-in-law. Yes. And so you know what I did, right? I, I wanted to do it myself. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I did. I was determined to do this myself, and my wife kept pleading with me, Call Reggie. Call Reggie. Call Reggie. No, 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 no. I'll just tear into the wall right here. And uh, I ended up calling Reggie, and I said, I, said, uh, I said, hey, man, I need some help here. I need some advice. What's going on? He said, well, is the, uh, is the main shutoff right, right there? And then I argued with him about, no, that's not the main shutoff. I don't know what, I don't know what this thing is right here, this lever that shuts this off. I mean, I'm a preacher, right? And he's a plumber, and I'm arguing with the guy about where the main shutoff is. Long story short, you know, Reggie, Reggie comes and uh, uh, by the grace of God, by the pleading of my wife and, and, and Reggie's wisdom, they find the leak in a supply line. Through, I would have had to tear through two walls to get to this thing because it was actually the hot water heater and, and, uh, and the, one of the supply lines was leaking. It had been leaking for quite some time, evidently. Listen, um, I want, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes we're not fully aware of the depth of the problem. I mean, from my perspective... Everything looks sort of normal. Uh, and life can be like that, can it? We don't always see the depth of the problem. Listen, if we're going to have accurate thinking about sin, Saul's or our own sin, we have to see beyond the exterior, right? I mean, we can even talk about worship services and sacrifices in Gilgal and there still be a deep-rooted problem in us. We need to see under the surface, to see behind the scenes to the truth about us. Saul did not listen to the voice of the Lord. He did not obey God's clear mission. This is not some alternative religious understanding. This is not some expression of theological pluralism. This is not Saul going on an adventure to find himself. This is rebellion. Yeah. This is sin. This is idolatry. This, 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 is, this, is, this is him doing his own thing, right? This is not listening to the word of the Lord. It is idolatry, arrogance, and rebellion. And of course, we see the consequences there in verse 23, don't we? For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. 
Listen carefully. Hmm. To reject the Lord's Word is to reject the Lord Himself. It is to reject the Lord's authority. In essence, it is to reject the Lord's kingship. It is to reject His rule. And because Saul had rejected God's rule, God rejected him from being king over Israel. Now you guys know this. Israel was a theocratic government. It was under the rule of Jehovah. God was their king. Saul simply ruled under the rulership of Jehovah. Now that he no longer acknowledged Jehovah's rule, no no longer obeyed the voice of the Lord, the Bible says here he was rejected. He was no longer fit to be king of Israel. All the fat and smoke of burning oxes and rams could not cover the stench of Saul's rebellion. The best of the herds of Amalek sacrificed on Gilgal's altar could not replace the pleasure God could have had in Saul's simple obedience. Now let me bring this home for us today. Listen, we're not saved from God's wrath by our obedience. You understand that? We are saved by grace, a free gift, through faith, that is trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is, listen, it is faith in a Lord. Yes. Do you understand? It is faith in a Master. Remember what Paul, Paul said to the Philippian jailer when he, when he asked, what must I do to be saved? He said, what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. When we become a Christian, we, we, we come under new management. You understand that? We're no longer slaves of sin, now we're slaves of righteousness. We're slaves of Christ. We die to ourselves. I mean, that's what it means when when Christ said, take up a cross and follow me. That is is dying to the selfishness and the sin and and the rulership that, that we want to have over our own lives. And we submit to follow Christ, both body and soul. Everything we are, now submitted to Christ. And the ability to do that, I know, and, and you know this too, the ability to do that, what is it's holy of grace. Yes. It's holy of God's grace. It, it, is, it, is, it is a conversion brought about by the Spirit of God. God does that. But if you are converted, if you have been changed by the grace of God, we ought to live like it. We, we, are, we are irrevocably obligated to live for the Lord we confess. We've learned here that obedience will not always be easy. And that when we rebel, we need to be honest about it and, uh, and honest about the sinfulness of sin and, and, what, and do what? Confess it quickly, right? Praise God that His gifts and His calling are irrevocable. That He will never ultimately leave or forsake His true children. God rejected Saul as king, but He will not utterly forsake His true children. I pray that you and I today would cry out for the grace that we so desperately need. And we would remember this grace is ours through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, we've come to my third major point. And I feel like I need to kind of uh, give you some solid footing as you're thinking about it and you're wrestling with this idea of God's regret. So I've entitled this next little section here as The Trouble of Regret. The Trouble of Regret. And, and uh, really it's the same word used of Saul there in verse 24 when, when uh, he, he says, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. It's the same idea there, repentance. Repentance. Sorrow. It is the Hebrew word Nahum. It is actually used some 20 times in the Old Testament to refer to God Himself. 
Now we know, and, and this is why I call it the trouble, or the, you know, the trouble with repentance, or the trouble with uh, regret, is because God doesn't need to repent of any kind of sin, does He? Yes. He doesn't sin. Obviously, I, I think there's trouble with uh, with Saul's uh, sort of uh, uh, repentance as well. I think it's a phony repentance. I think he's just sorry that he got caught, yes. and sorry that now he has to suffer the consequences for it. We'll get to that later. And I think there's trouble there with, with the idea of God's regret too. Why? Because there's two places that it says two different things. And we want to look at that real quickly here. Verse 11, first of all, in chapter 15. Verse 11. It says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And uh, that's, that's the first place. And then we go to uh, verse 35. Verse 35. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now here's where the trouble comes in. Look at verse 29. Verse 29. It says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So we have a God who regrets and yet does not regret. Can you see the trouble? (laughs) Now I want to say this to you because I want to give you some firm footing. I want to give you a firm foundation. God does not change. Never take a passage like this and form a whole theology around it. Do you understand? Always go to the clear teaching of Scripture and then interpret interpret passages like this in light of the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, we're going to get to this in a little bit more detail by God's grace next week. But let me establish for you or reestablish for you what we call in theology the immutability of God. Say that word with me, immutability. It simply means God does not change. Alright? Let me establish this for you. Let me lay this firm foundation as you're wrestling with this and you're thinking about it. We'll come back and revisit it, Lord willing, next week. The Bible repeatedly and unapologetically underscores the fact that God does not change. In fact, He cannot change because He cannot improve on absolute perfection or decline in His externally fixed nature. Do you understand that? Right? His... His person does not change. It says Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. His plans do not change. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Psalm 33, verse 11. His purposes do not change. So when God desired to show convincingly the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. Who did He make an oath to? Himself. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. God does not change His mind. Right? We just read that passage. That's verse 29. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for He is not a man that He should have regret. His words do not change. The Holy One of Israel does not call back His words, Isaiah 31, 1 and 2. Or His calling, His gifts and calling, right? The gifts and calling of God what are irrevocable. That's Romans chapter 11, verse 29. There are absolutely no changes in God, no variations, no surprises. Listen, isn't this wonderful? God never says, whoops, uh-oh, or I didn't know that. <laughs> he doesn't say that. Psalm 102, verse 27. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Speaking of God, God does not increase and God does not 
decrease. He does not improve and He does not decline. He does not change due to some altered circumstances. There are no unforeseen emergencies to the One who is eternally all-knowing. This is God. His eternal purposes stand forever because He stands forever. He does not react. He simply acts. And he and he does so how so how, he does so however he pleases. Psalm one fifteen verse three. Our God is in the heavens; He does all that He pleases. Now, from a human perspective, right? From a human perspective, it appears sometimes that God changes; that He changes His plans or He changes His actions based on what people do. This particular passage, but this is not so from God's. Viewpoint, because he he knows and he always has known the future. How perfectly, yeah. yeah. And having planned it according to his unalterable decree, this is God. He all he always acts in a way that he's planned to act from 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 eternity past. And, and while men do not know how God will act, we don't know, and are sometimes astonished as they see his sovereign plans unfold. God is never surprised. Never surprised. He continues to work as He always has according to His eternal purpose and His good pleasure. Again, Psalm 33. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. God cannot change. His Word cannot change. His purpose cannot change. His truth is the same because He is the truth. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. God reveals Himself as the God of truth. His Word is revealed to us as truth. I mean, everything about God is truth, right? Hmm. In contrast to the so-called openness of God theology, which, which claims that that God somehow does not know the future and therefore must adapt to circumstances as they unfold, or, or this sort of limited sovereignty nonsense. Like God is somehow sovereign over most things, just not all things. I mean, what kind of God is that? Yeah? I, uh, I, uh, I hope you see that as nonsense. Hmm. The Bible presents God as the all-knowing sovereign of all events, past, present, and future. In the words of Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient, th- ancient times things yet not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Well, I hope that's some firm footing for you to begin to think about this idea of God's regrets. How is it that this unchangeable God has regrets? Well, you have to come next week. Yes. Lord willing to hear that. All right? So let's pray together. Father, we are, we are grateful. We thank You for the clarity of Your Word to us. It teaches us what pleases You. Help, help us, God, to, to live in obedience to Your voice to think rightly about all our capital offenses against You. And when we sin, Lord, help us to be honest and to confess. We thank You for Your progressive work of growing us in obedience, for Your patience and determination to see us, Lord, through to full maturity in Christ. We acknowledge You are the unchanging God. God, what a a joy for Your people that we don't have to guess what You're going to be like tomorrow for we know what You're like in times past and You are forever the same.
Through Jesus, we come and offer this prayer. Amen.